This is the Downey's DM Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Downey's EM Podcast for our topic, Marble Mouth, the Pediatric Oral Pharyngeal Foreign Body. All right, so let's start just by outlining our plan for today's conversation before the podcast. We're going to be highlighting the complexity of the pediatric oropharyngeal foreign body, during which time we are going to be delineating decision points in the care of these patients. And as we encounter these decision points, I'm going to be arming your quiver with different tools for the treatment of this disease process. Along the way, I also hope to outline a little bit of the value of mental simulation in what are called these halo experiences, the high acuity, low opportunity experiences, which a pediatric oropharyngeal foreign body is. It's important to know that as we go into and through this topic, it is not one of our major evidence-based topics. If you do a literature review, which we did in preparation for this, there's not uh, an evidence-based guideline. There's not textbook chapters specifically designated to this. Most of the information you're going to find are case reports, and many of the case reports involve mostly impalement, injuries where something went through the hypopharynx or into the retropharyngeal space, and a little bit different than these trapped foreign bodies in the hypopharynx that we're going to be discussing today. So first, let's open with a case. And as we get into that idea of mental simulation, I actually want you to close your eyes. Don't do it if you're driving, but if you're able to, close your eyes and think about what I'm outlining here. I want you to imagine a 26-month-old male coming into your ER with one hour of coughing, choking, and drooling. Think about how you're feeling what a response that's eliciting in you. Now I want you to actually imagine that child crying, frantically crying and very upset about what's going on. Mom comes in and starts giving a frantic history about what's going on with their child. The nurse is typing away. They put the kid on the monitor and he's tachycardic. Telemetry starts going wild. So hopefully just by adding that little bit of auditory stimuli, it's raised your heart rate. Maybe your palms are getting sweaty, the hair is standing up on the end of your arms. It's really getting you into the acuity of this situation. And that's an example just of how a little bit of mental simulation, using that powerful mental simulator for these cases, can really heighten the experience for you and get you ready for it when it happens in actuality. Now all the information in this podcast today is going to be based on an actual case I had And before I experienced that, I had a thought process. I thought intranasal midazolam, that's going to be the answer to all of my problems. I'm going to squirt a little bit of that juice up their nose. They're going to chill out, and I'm going to take the foreign body out. It's going to be simple. It's not going to be irritating to them. Easy peasy. Let's go over the logistics, though, of using intranasal midazolam. What is the dose? What is the general dosing of intranasal midazolam? Generally cited as 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Bringing that down, it comes in 1 or 5 milligrams per ml concentrations, and of course we're going to use a higher concentration in these cases. For our 26-month-old 15-kilogram child, that's 7.5 milligrams. In the higher concentration vial, that's 1.5 mLs. Now what's the problem with that? Right, too much volume. Generally, you'd say that you can use about 1 mL per nair. And in a kid, that's pushing. That's going to be a large volume for them. That's going to be like drinking from a fire hose. And that's what happened in actuality here. We divided it up, tried to do you know three quarters of an ml per nair. 
And when we did the first one, the kid hated it. He thrashed, he fought, he threw his head back. All the things that you don't want these kids doing in these circumstances. And we actually confirmed our diagnosis of an oral foreign body when the kid reached their head back and screamed and the nurse saw a piece of plastic in the hypopharynx. So what do you need to do to not be like I was and be a super doc? Well, the first thing you need to recognize is superheroes don't operate alone, right? Think about the Justice League, X-Men. They all have their buddies with them. You need personnel, meds, and equipment to operate successfully here. And let's go over each one of these individually. In terms of personnel, the first thing is getting one of your colleagues. If you have more than single coverage, grab a colleague, someone you trust who has a steady demeanor and a steady hand. Bring in your other ED providers. If it's daylight hours or if you have 24-hour access to this or just generally, if you're able to, bring in other specialties, in particular here, anesthesia. And that's what we did. It was during the day, we called for anesthesia immediately upon bringing this kid into the room. In terms of equipment you need, I want to break this down into four specific areas. You need equipment for med administration, equipment for object retrieval, oral intubating equipment, and if things go south, equipment for a surgical airway, or in our case, a jet ventilation airway. And then finally, you need your meds, which we're going to break down more specifically now. So as we arm our quiver for these circumstances, let's talk about anxiolysis. We need to keep these kids calm or get them calm if they're freaking out. In order to do that, we need to talk about two things, routes of administration and meds. So what are ways, what are routes that we can give medications? We already talked about one of them intranasal. Another route is intramuscular. Then we have IV and of course IO. In terms of medications, there are many medicines out there, but I've always held to the mantra KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. For me, there are three medications that are important in this regard. We talked about one already as well, midazolam. The other two are ketamine and succinylcholine, and we'll talk about why in a second. So now that we have our meds and our routes, let's talk about doses. We need to have in our mind specific numbers and doses that we can recall when it's really hitting the fan. So for midazolam, we know the IVIO dose. Generally for status epilepticus, we talk about 0.1 mg per kg. For intranasal and intramuscular, we talked a little bit about that as well. It's 0.2 to 0.5. I want you to just remember 0.5 mg per kg for intranasal and intramuscular. Those are high-end doses, but that's okay. We want to get these kids calm. So if you can remember 0.1 for IV or IO and 0.5 for intranasal or intramuscular, you'll be doing well. In terms of ketamine, this is a drug we know well. Oftentimes for RSI or other things, we're using 2 milligrams per kilogram IV. And if you think about your agitated delirium cases where you're using intramuscular, it's often roughly 4 milligrams per kilogram. Now there's a huge dose range in that regard. They're all over the map, in particular for intramuscular, where it can be from two all the way up to, I saw sightings of 13 milligrams per kilogram, but four is generally well accepted and seen in the literature. Now for succinylcholine, again, we know this medication very well in terms of IV use for RSI. 1.5 to 2, nice easy number, 2 milligrams per kilogram. And then another route of administration that I was not aware of that our anesthesia colleagues expressed to us as possible is intramuscular succinylcholine. And luckily here, that's a very easy number again, four, four milligrams per kilogram. So for ketamine and sucks, you only need to remember two numbers, two milligrams per kilogram IV, four milligrams per kilogram IM. 
Now, what about other agents? In particular, what about rock uranium? My RSI generally favors rock over sucks. Unfortunately, this has been studied a lot of data in the late 90s in this regard, and intramuscular rock uranium was kind of frowned upon just because of a variable onset of action and kind of inconsistent results. So now that we have our meds and our routes, let's talk about administration. We need to have at our bedside needles to give intramuscular medications, angiocaths for IV, an atomizer, and an IO gun. Simple. With those three medicines and four routes of administration, we can now run the gamut. We can take this kid from slightly sleepy all the way to RSI or anywhere in between with those agents. So if we're keeping a mental checklist of our branch points, we have the following. We have thought about the route and the med. And it's going to depend on the age of the child, their weight, and how distressed they are, how rapidly we have to act. For routes, we're talking about intramuscular, intranasal, IV, or IO. And for meds, we're talking about medaz, ketamine, and sucks. Now let's go on to talk about retrieval. Retrieval is relatively straightforward. Not a lot of equipment here. I was trained with the McGill's. I like them as an agent here. They have the curve after the handle, making it pass into the mouth well, the looped forceps, making them atraumatic. A great instrument to use there in that regard. You're definitely going to want to have suction at bedside in case there's blood or secretions. And then some talk about having a Foley or other device like that, that you can pass beyond the foreign body, inflate the balloon, and pull back to try to delodge it from the hypopharynx. And then finally, we need to talk about or think about if things go south. What if the airway fully occludes and we can't get it out and we cannot get an airway? We need to think about getting bloody here, getting surgical, and really in this area we're talking about needle airway or jet ventilation. Most of us, many of us were trained, you know, we love doing MacGyver things in the emergency department, taking things and using them for other purposes. We've been trained on that you know, 10 to 14 gauge angiocath into the cricothyroid membrane, using a 3cc syringe, pulling the plunger out, attaching the endotracheal tube 7.5 junction, and connecting it to the AMBU bag. Very MacGyver of us, right? But after this difficult case I had, I wanted to learn more about this topic, in particular jet ventilation, so I sat down with the experts. I sat and spoke with Laura Duggan, She's an anesthesiologist with a focus in cardiothoracics, pediatrics, and difficult airways. A great person, great expert to talk to on this topic. And that conversation will be available shortly. It's posted in other forums, but we'll make it available to you in short order. She made me aware of the fact that this angiocath technique is not always ideal. The angiocath is not meant to flex. It often will flex and move at the skin surface. And that will cause little cracks or fractures in the angiocath. The AMBU bag also is very difficult to control in terms of the amount of pressure you're delivering. And increased pressures can fracture that angiocath, causing a lot of sub-Q emphysema, or can pop a pneumothorax in these little kits. She brought to my attention some commercially available flow-regulating jet ventilators. I have no specific stock in any of them, but it's important to make you guys aware. There is the ANC oxygen flow modulator, the Rapid O2, and the Ventrain, and we'll have links in our show notes to all three of these devices. They're about $200. They have about a five-year shelf life. Not a bad thing to have for this halo circumstance. So wrapping things up, we talked about branch points and arming our quiver for decisions within each of these branch points. The first thing to think about is what route are we going to go in terms of our anxiolysis or sedation? 
We have at our disposal intranasal, intramuscular, IV, and IO. We need angiocaths, needles for intramuscular injection, an atomizer, and an IO gun for that. Meds, there are many out there, but I recommend midazolam, remembering the doses of 0.1 mg per kg IV or 0.5 mg per kg intranasal or intramuscular. And ketamine and sucks, which are 2 mg per kg IV and 4 mg per kg IM. Finally, we have our retrieval devices. I'm used to the McGill. You want to have suction ready at bedside and possibly a Foley to help dislodge the object. And then finally, we need to have our equipment in our mind frame really ready for the surgical airway. If all you have is that MacGyver technique angiocath, that's fine, but know that there are commercially available devices out there if you so choose. And that's it. And then we're not trying to make this a more complicated disease process than it is. It's something stuck in a little kid's airway or hypopharynx, but it's a halo circumstance, right? It's a high acuity, low opportunity circumstance. We need to have a mental framework ready before the case comes in. We need to know the equipment the personnel, the meds that we need before this happens to us. So take some time to review this information. Try to get some of the basic doses for your medications down and be ready to save a little kid's life. Thanks for listening. Okay, that's all for the Down ECM podcast for now. Please always remember to put your comments and questions in the comments section. If you like what you hear and want to follow us for more, you can find us on iTunes or through your RSS feed or your favorite podcast app on your smartphone. Until next time.